Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father, again, thank you for this opportunity to study. We look around the world and we see such a great need for your presence, your spirit, your healing, your truth. We ask that you will use us, our class, our friends around the circle to help take the light of your kingdom to this world. Give us wisdom as we study today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number five in the quarterly Psalms, and the title is Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. And the memory verse for this week's lesson is Psalms 137.4. However, the entire psalm is about captivity in Babylon. I thought it might be interesting to compare the nine-verse psalm from the NIV to the remedy version. And as we do so, allow you to consider the differences that come through in the way that they are presented. And uh, not just uh, presenting the historical captivity of ancient Israel, but the object lesson meaning of the prophetic captivity of God's people in Babylon as well. You know, my view of accurate Bible translation is primarily about bringing the meaning across, not the exact words for or a word-to-word translation, especially if the new language word means something different than the old language intended to convey. And to bring across the most accurate meaning, one needs to understand the truth about God's character, his design law, the nature of sin, God's solution for the sin problem. And if, uh, if when translating one understands those elements, their understanding of those elements is tainted by the Roman imperial view of human law, then linguistically translation might be accurate, but they may weave in meanings that are legal that are not actually intended by the original author. So let's consider these two versions. We'll start with 137.1 out of the NIV. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And then from the remedy, by the rivers of Babylon as captives in this selfish world, we wept when we remembered Zion, God's fortress of spiritual health and wellness. You see, the remedy version expands the meaning from merely literal historical people who were held captive in the historical kingdom of Babylon to include the spiritual object lesson that both ancient Israel and Babylon represent, God's people enslaved by Satan's kingdom of fear and selfishness that operates upon imposed human law, legal justice system of inflicted penalties, which stands in contrast to God's kingdom, which Jesus said is within you. The kingdom of God is within you which is the kingdom of spiritual health and wellness. Thus, the remedy immediately draws our mind to consider the deeper lessons that the historical events in the Old Testament were designed to teach. And, you know, the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament was there to, as a lesson book for us. And, and as you consider the remedy paraphrase, what do you believe is the primary purpose of Scripture? The intention of the Holy Spirit in having writers record what we have recorded in scripture. What's the purpose of the Holy Spirit doing this? Is the primary purpose of the Bible a history book? No. 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 The purpose of the recorded history, and we do believe it records history, but the purpose of the selected history and its recording is about our existence, the sin problem, and God's solution for it, the plan of salvation. That's the purpose of the record of scripture, is it not? All right, let's continue on with the next uh, verses two through four. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy, and they said, 
Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And then here's the remedy paraphrase. There on the willows we hung our harps while our captors told us to sing. They demanded songs of happiness and joy. They said, sing us a song of health about Zion. How can our lives be songs revealing God's character of love while our hearts are held captive to this selfish world? Do you see the, the, the subtle shift in the attention? What do you think is the true concern? Physical captivity in a physical land? Or is the scripture's primary concern having our hearts and minds held captive to sin and selfishness? And the meaning of the song is not simply a tune hummed or sang from our mouths, but the song is the melody of our lives, that our lives are to be songs of truth and love that harmonize with God's kingdom of truth and love. But how can our lives be songs that resonate truth and love in a world, in this world, if our hearts and minds are held captive by fear and selfishness? which introduces what I believe the reality of scripture, that while we are in the world, we are not to be of the world. And even if we end up imprisoned by the powers of this world, like Jesus and so many of his faithful followers, the powers of this world um, throughout history, the evil powers of this world cannot imprison our hearts and minds without our consent. The only way we can have lives that are songs of truth and love to God is by having our hearts circumcised by the Holy Spirit, hearts set free from the captivity of fear and selfishness in this world. So as you think about this, do you agree that, that this is the true meaning of what the psalmist is trying to suggest through the object lesson of the captivity of God's people in the power of Babylon? Yes, I believe the intent is there. The, uh, the author certainly had, uh, had some influence in the, in the last uh, sentence there. Yes, of course. Uh, Psalms 137, 5 and 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And then from the remedy. If I forget the truth about you, O Jerusalem, the center of God's healing plan, may I write no more music. May I sing no more songs if they are not about you, if they do not teach God's healing plan centered in you, O Jerusalem, as my highest joy. Again, what do you hear? Is the psalmist's primary concern about a city, or is the Holy Spirit inspiring a message about the plan of salvation? And the plan of salvation was centered in the teaching and the lessons given through Israel, centered in the sanctuary, the temple, which was in Jerusalem. This is, and the psalmist would rather be silent than use his talent to misrepresent God. And this is our prayer at Come and Reason Ministries, that we, that we pray that we only save God what is right, that our classes, presentations, publications, programs will constantly improve and refine our ability to give an ever more clear presentation about God to advance and grow in truth any remnants of misunderstanding or falsehood that we have been taught, we would rather be silent than teach things about God that are not true. That's what I think the meaning here is. Do you think that's the intent of the psalmist? He'd rather be silent than misrepresent God. 
Absolutely. And, and now the final three verses, the verses that have been very difficult for people to understand and explain, verses that confound people. And even those who say that we should take the Bible just as it reads and apply it to our lives don't want to do that with these verses. Why? Why? Because the way these verses are rendered in essentially every translation except the remedy doesn't fit with what Jesus taught. And I believe that's because it's a mistranslation, misunderstanding. But, but here's how they're typically rendered. And you can check a lot of verse, versions. This is uh, from the NIV. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundation. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Do you see why people who take the Bible as it reads still struggle with this passage? Let's take it as a read. Let's not interpret it. Let's just do what it says. Well, if you think this through, is this actually even true as it reads? Do you think that one person, a person can find true happiness, godly happiness, by killing the babies of one's enemies? Do you think if you identified people who are legitimate enemies to the kingdom of God and you could get their babies and smash their heads on rocks, you would be happier? Yes or no? I'm not hearing anything. No, no. Wouldn't, be, wouldn't be in the right spirit. Well, not even the right spirit. Just do you think what happens to a person if you were to do that? What happens to the person who would kill babies? They get damaged. Yes, you can't have happiness doing this. So, so the, the text itself doesn't make sense. Some scholars have understood this to be a psalm that rather than teaching or communicating truth of how reality works, the true way to find happiness, it instead communicates the struggle of the psalmist, his anger, his temptations, his carnal desires for vengeance, and then models going to God in prayer with honestly saying these things to God in conversation as they're worked out. This principle of going to God with our anger and ungodly desires and talking it out with him is absolutely the right thing to do and a godly principle. But I challenge that interpretation of this psalm. You find that in many other psalms where the psalmist will talk about vengeance or anger or hostility or depression or discouragement. But in those psalms, he always ends up going to some aspect of God's deliverance in the past, some aspect of God's creation, some aspect of God of hope in God. He doesn't end with happier. The solution is in those is happier those who trust in God, not happier those who take your enemies and smash them to the ground. So enemies, babies and kill them on the rocks. So I don't think that this psalm actually means that, even though I, I cherish and value the, the attempt by the scholars to interpret it this way. Here's, here's what I think it actually means, and this is the remedy paraphrase. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did the day, uh, the day Jerusalem, your spiritual treatment center fell. They shouted, tear it down, tear it down to the ground. O people of Babylon who cling to selfishness, you are doomed to destruction. Happy are those who are finished with you, just as you deserve, who have weaned themselves from you. Happy are they who take your children to fall upon the rock and be broken. Wow. And the rock is capitalized. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Do you see a difference in these versions now? Tim, that version really, really does put put the put a meaning in the right direction as far as I'm concerned. I, 
Interestingly, last night I read something in the SBA Bible commentary about, in fact, it was the encyclopedia about Herod the Great. And he, in fact, was supposedly from Edomite extraction. And in, in, in this regard, they, the Jews, for long, many centuries, had, had problems with, between themselves and the Edomites. And of course, ultimately, as we know, uh, Herod, I, I think it was Herod Agrippa, though, uh, uh, killed all those babies because of because of uh, trying to kill Jesus. So, so do you hear it? There's, there's a, Go ahead. There's a physical aspect of hatred between the people, and and so, you know that. And and, it's, and so so with, I don't care that with that to ignore it in this passage. I don't care about that. But there's. But I'm not ignoring it in this passage. You're not. I'm actually. I'm not ignoring it. Let's take that 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 hatred and let's ask the questions. What actually brings true happiness? Uh, and so, if you understand what what this passage is doing, and you can see there's a difference between the the laws being applied. The NIV is an imperialistic, authoritarian application of of imposed law and punishment, and the design law of the remedy, and which is most consistent with the plan of salvation. What God is trying to do to sinners. Is God trying to destroy sinners or bring them to Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation, for us to fall upon him, be broken of our fear, selfishness, guilt, and shame, and be reborn to salvation? And so if you understand in the paraphrase, happy are those who are finished with you. Finished with you. Babylon. What is Babylon? What are we called in Revelation? Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Come out of her, my people. You'll be happy if you're finished with Babylon. If you leave that imperial, legalistic, and post-law punishing God system behind and return to worship the creator. Happy are you who are finished with you. Just as you deserve, let, let it go. Let that system go. Who have weaned themselves from you. And happier are those who, having come out of Babylon, look back into Babylon and find children of those people and say, hey, come over here and worship the Creator. Fall upon Jesus Christ. Be broken, reborn, renewed. And boy, doesn't that bring us happiness to, to, to free ourselves from this imperial dictator, penal, legal, fear-based system and come into a loving, recreated relationship with our Savior and lead others to it as well. That's what I think the psalm actually is intended to say. And it's been cloaked behind this imperial legal way of interpreting scripture that, that doesn't really make sense. Questions about that now that I explained it? Does it make sense as I explain it? Yes. Well, the, the original is certainly centered on an imperial, um, you know, human perspective. There's no question about that. So I encourage you, that would be a great one to pull out and show people uh, and uh, their, their traditional version and then pull it out from the remedy and show them and have a discussion about the, the deeper meanings of what the Bible is trying to convey. First paragraph in the lesson says, we do not need to go deep into the book of Psalms in order to discover that the Psalms are uttered in an imperfect world, one of sin, evil, suffering, and death. The stable creation run by the sovereign Lord and his righteous laws is constantly threatened by evil. As sin corrupts the world more and more, the earth has increasingly become a strange land to God's people. This reality creates a problem for the psalmist. How does one live a life of faith in a strange land? Do we recognize the strangeness that sin has brought into the world? Or do we see the sin 
Satan's methods, Satan's worldly structure that all the world operates upon as normal. And rather than seeing the world as a strange land, we see God's truth, kingdom, gospel as strange. Well, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching, and this is what we read starting in verse 18. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting in the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. Why was, what Paul, why was the truth Paul presented in Athens considered strange to the people there? Totally different from anything they had experienced so far. Could we say they accepted false gods and the worldly methods and Paul was presenting the truth about the creator to them? Yes. What about today? If we present the truth about God as creator, that his laws are design laws, the protocols reality operate upon, that God's laws are not the types of laws that sinful human beings make up, rules that require legal oversight and enforcement. Do people embrace that or do they say, what is this strange teaching you're teaching? They say it's evolution that got us here, not creation. I'm talking about in the church. Well, some in the church, do people accept or do they complain it's strange? Why is it strange to so many people in the church when we present God as creator and his laws as design law? Because they accept the lie that God's government and law function like Rome, a set of rules that require enforcement. And thus when you present the truth, it's strange to them. And what do people do when they receive strange ideas, ideas that don't fit with what they've been taught? What would they do to Paul? They feel threatened. They resist. They fight against these ideas. This is what the Bible calls being stiff-necked, an unwillingness to turn the mind and turn the head, turn the mind, and consider other possibilities to learn, to examine evidence, to follow the truth. It's the opposite of biblical obedience. Biblical obedience is not about rule-keeping. It literally means, the, the word obedience, hupil okue, means a humble willing, hupil under, okue, acoustical, it means a humble willingness to listen, be instructed with truth, and follow and apply the truth to one's life. But when one accepts the imposed law lie, then obedience becomes rule keeping, and righteousness becomes misrepresented as a stiff-necked resistance to advancing truth, clinging to the traditions, to the pioneers, uh, or as in the Adventist circles, clinging to the old landmarks and resist the advancing truth. And this is what our church did in 1888. The leadership rejected the actual truth. They were stiff-necked and resisted and doubled down on Romanism and have been teaching the lie. Here's what uh, Ellen White wrote, counsels to writers, in the aftermath of Minneapolis 1888. In Minneapolis, God gave precious gems of truth to his people in new settings. The light from heaven by some was rejected with all the stubbornness the Jews manifested in rejecting Christ. And there was much talk about standing by the old landmarks. But there was evidence they knew not what the old landmarks were. There was evidence 
that there was reasoning. Come let us reason together from the word that commended itself to the conscience. But the minds of men were fixed, sealed against the entrance of light because they had decided it was a dangerous error removing the old landmarks when it was not moving a peg of the old landmarks, but they had perverted ideas of what constituted the old landmarks. Wow. Hmm. Tim, I think, I think the, uh, no matter how perverse reality may have, have become for many people, especially the, the ones who, who believe that humans should be able to exercise this imperial imposition to a point, no matter how perverse that is, that is nevertheless where many, many people go. They just sort of give it up to the authorities, give it up to the, the theologians or whatever to, to try to pronounce these things. And they begin to regard the old landmarks, as it says in this, in this passage here, as the new reality. And so what happens is exactly what we're talking about here, that the, the, the leadership of the Adventist institution rejected the advancing light of design law, doubled down on Romanism, God's laws and system of rules requiring God to inflict punishments, and we've been wandering in the wilderness now, since then. We are, in enemy, we are in enemy territory. All the kingdoms of the world, Jesus said, are Satan's. They're not his. They all run on made-up rules like Babylon, Code of Hammurabi, with judicial oversight and inflict, inflicted punishments. Jesus said that his kingdom doesn't run this way. That included the nation of Israel when he was on the earth. He didn't say to the people, all the kingdoms of the world are Satan's except Israel. That's my kingdom, and that's how I run the universe. No, he didn't say that. Israel was running just like the rest of the kingdoms of the world, and it wasn't God's kingdom. And the church became Romanized after Jesus tried to set it right with man-made rules, teaching that God makes up rules and inflicts punishment. Thus, rather than realizing the world is a strange place, many teach in Christianity that the gospel that we are presenting is what's strange. And they make the, the, the biblical narrative look like a human system of governance that they're comfortable with. They don't know what to do with passages like Isaiah 55, seven through nine, which says, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord for he will have mercy on him to our God for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declare the Lord. I don't run my kingdom the way you earthly governments run as the heavens are higher than the earth. So my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Freely pardon? This seems strange to us. This doesn't make sense to pardon people freely without a price being paid, without a penalty being inflicted, without someone taking the punishment. Justice requires punishment. You can't freely pardon people, then there'll be no justice. People will get away with anything. This is the worldly system. And when you try to present this in the church, you get met with, that's a strange idea. Freely pardon doesn't make sense to people who believe God's government works like human governments. But when we return to design law, Worship the creator, we realize that God's pardon does not reverse the damage of sin. To reverse the damage of sin requires divine intervention in the heart and minds of sinners to recreate them in righteousness. 
and that requires they trust God and open their hearts to him, and that required a savior to come to fix all the damage that sin had done to this creation. So God pardons everyone freely, but only those who trust God and receive the indwelling spirit and what Christ achieved are reborn, healed, renewed, recreated, receive the mind of Christ, have the living law written upon their hearts and minds, become friends of God, have fear and selfishness removed, and have the law written upon their heart and mind are restored, reconciled to at one with God. That's salvation, that's reality, that's regeneration. All those who reject the truth, who cling to the lies and distrust God, will die from their sin sickness, but God will still be forgiving toward them because he is not the source of death. Just like a doctor who forgives the patient who lied and didn't take their medicine, but despite the doctor's forgiveness, the patient still dies of their disease. But this free pardon doesn't make sense if one believes God law, God's law works like human law. And thus we have many church leaders with sincere hearts functioning, notice I said sincere hearts, functioning like Saul of Tarsus, persecuting the followers of Christ in the church today who are advancing the gospel, the, the message for this time, and they persecute the church like Saul today through various means of censure, removal from office, disfellowship, deplatforming, slander, labeling as heretical, and so forth. And we pray for them these modern day souls, that they may have a Damascus Road experience yeah. and become powerful agents for the true gospel, just like Paul became. That's our heart for them. Amen. It seems like, um, you know, when we our attitude when we come to study the Bible means a lot. Like, if we come with a hum humble, teachable spirit and we want to know God better, know the truth, and have our mind open to something we didn't at first understand, then we can learn new truth as it becomes unfolded. And like you say, people think they have the old landmarks, it's all they need, they don't need anything else. What you just described is biblical obedience. This humble attitude to listen and learn, hypo, hypo, under, listen, that's biblical obedience. That's an obedient friend and servant of God, somebody who can be taught a humble listening. Thank you for saying that, keep going. But God dwells in eternity. You know, he has truth ever progressing. We'll learn so many things as eternity progresses that will just be amazing. That's right. God's infinite and we're finite. We never become God, do we? So all eternity future is an unfolding growth in our knowledge of God and his infinite truth. So you're exactly right. We never stop learning, never stop advancing. And that's why the lost in Thessalonians are lost because, quote, they did not love the truth and thus be saved, unquote. It's not they didn't love their doctrines or they didn't love their, their creeds or fundamental belief systems or religion. It's they didn't have a love for advancing truth. They would set down the landmarks and they would hold to those landmarks, but as truth was unfolding, they would not grow with it. And thus, they didn't have a love for actual truth in their heart. They had a love for their systems of belief, their, their way of seeing the world. And, and thus they couldn't be healed because they wouldn't grow. So you're exactly right. We have to have a love for truth, a heart that wants to grow in advancing truth. Yes, Linda. Ken and I are both fourth generation Adventists. And we never thought we would see the church behave the way it has been behaving. We, um, <laughs> 
I just feel like um, these people don't they don't see themselves as Saul they are uh, closed to new learning and I mean I'm just shocked I, I remember reading in Ellen White says uh, and the and ministers people will turn on their ministers I never in a million years thought that our own Adventist ministers might be who somebody turns on so, so they don't see themselves as Saul. How did Saul see himself before Damascus Road? He was right. That's a, that, so they see themselves as Saul sees himself before Damascus Road. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, second paragraph says, as we already have seen, the psalmist acknowledges God's sovereign rule and power, as well as his righteous judgment. What do you understand God's righteous judgments to be? When you hear judgments, what law lens are you hearing it through? If you think human law, then judgments means judicial findings with inflictions of just punishments. But design law, we think accurate diagnosis of what the problem is and therapeutic judgments of therapeutic interventions to advance the plan of salvation and bring healing. Consider this historical quote from Patriarchs and Prophets and answer, what what type of judgment is described here? How great is the long suffering of God toward the wicked? The idolatrous Philistines and backsliding Israel had alike enjoyed the gifts of his providence. Uh, they, 10,000 unnoticed mercies were silently falling in their path, the path of ungrateful rebellious men. Every blessing spoke to them of the giver, but they were indifferent to his love. The forbearance of God was very great toward the children of men, but when they stubbornly persisted in their impenitence, he removed from them his protecting hand. They refused to listen to the voice of God in his created works and in the warnings, counsels, and reproofs of his word. And thus he was forced to speak to them through judgments. How do you hear judgments here? Tribunals, judicial processes, inflictions of punishments. Wake up call. Consequences. Uh, consequences. They receive consequences. Yeah, absolutely. That's the word, consequences. What law is in operation here? Imposed law or how things work? If the creator lets go, what happens? It's terrible. Yeah, why does God intervene like this? Is it judicial, he's required by law? Is it remedial, healing, discipline, redemptive, designed to teach? It's like when a parent is instructed a child over and over and over again not to touch the hot stove and the child keeps insisting on doing it, when the parent finally lets them do it, is the parent being mean or is the parent letting them learn what my dad used to call through the school of hard knocks? It's redemptive. It's teaching. But it's teaching how, it, through experience, how reality works. The question in the bottom of Thursday's lesson, though, because of the judgment, asked this in the bottom of Thursday's lesson. How does the promise of God's judgment upon the world and upon all its evil, give you comfort when so much evil now goes unpunished. Is this, is this question presenting a certain view of the world? Is it presenting an idea that advances a certain type of law? Is the question operating inside Romanism, how Roman law works? 
Is it even true in God's kingdom? Is the question even true? Is the question, if you understand God's kingdom, a lie? The question itself promotes a lie. Do the unrepentant ever get away with evil? Ever. No, they never get away with evil. And to present it this way advances Satan's kingdom. Satan's lies against God. God, Satan is alleged, guys, there's nothing wrong with sin. Sin itself is not harmful. There's only something wrong with what God will do to you for it. See, sin breaks his rules. It doesn't actually do anything to you. It gets you in legal trouble with God who gets angry and offended. And then God has anger management problems and will have to use his power to legally uh, uh, you know, inflict punishment. The problem with sin is God's attitude and action towards the sinner, not the sin itself. This is Satan's distortion. It's really sickening to me to see this so deeply embedded, but this is what's happened to our system because of the rejection of what the church rejected in 1888. So why do sinners never get away? Because of what happens in the heart, mind, character, soul, of the person who sins. Every choice to sin, whether in heart, mind, or deed, damages the person, perverts the mind and soul, hardens the heart, sears the conscience, corrupts the character, incites fear, guilt, shame. And if the person does not repent and experience God's healing power in their lives, giving them a new heart and right spirit, if they don't get that, then their sin eventually sears the conscience and destroys the faculties that are sensitive to God's spirit of truth and love. No sinner ever gets away with it. You cannot avoid it. The idea that sin goes unpunished is the idea that presents Satan's lie from the very beginning. And what was that lie? Every sin must meet its punishment, urge Satan. And these lies undermine trust. And people respond to the falsehood that God must punish by adding new layers of legal falsehoods to protect us from the punishing God, like God requires appeasement, God's wrath requires assuaging, legal penalties must be paid, someone must be uh, between us and God to protect us from his wrath, to propitiate him in some way. We must have our records erased of sin. All of these other additional lies are added to protect us from the lie that our problem is with God. It's really, really sickening. And it's really this form of godliness that Paul talked about that has no power. Well, yeah, in reality, Jesus came, he came and he healed everybody. Yeah. And he gave words of wisdom that nobody had ever heard before. And he went into the deeper meaning of the law, where it's actually in your thoughts. It's not just what you do outwardly, it's what's inside of you. The kingdom of heaven is inside of you. That's exactly right. And they hated him for it. And all of his parables, every one of his parables teach design law. Go back and read them. We have a blog on our website. You can get up Parables of Jesus, and it goes through and shows that every parable is a manifestation of design law, which was exposing the fallacy of this imperialistic legal system the Jews were, were advancing, and they hated him because he kept undermining their, their authority of office, their authority of position, undermining the good works that they've earned, the credits that they've earned, et cetera, et cetera. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph, says, the problem with evil in, in the Psalms is primarily theological. 
It inevitably concerns questions about God. Thus, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is seen principally as the divine scandal because it provides a opportunity for the heathen to blaspheme God. God's inheritance, the people of Israel, is the sign of his divine election and covenant that will never, that will never fail. The concept of God's inheritance also contains an end time dimension as one day all nations will become God's inheritance and will serve him. The notion that the nations nations invaded God's inheritance threatens these divine promises. I think that, that the, uh, the, the lesson is pulling on a truth here that, that the problem of evil is primarily theological. It concerns questions about God. I think that's well said. And Satan lies to undermine our confidence in God. And the lesson though suggests there's questions that need answering. And then the lesson makes a suggestion in the fourth paragraph of the lesson about the questions that need answering. Here's what the lesson suggests. However, more important than the restoration of Israel's fortunes is the defense of God's character in the world. If the evil actions of the nations go unpunished, it will appear that God has lost his power. Only when God saves his people will his name be justified and uplifted. Now, the lesson's absolutely right to focus our attention on God's character, absolutely correct. But what character does the lesson suggest God has? And is, God, and is presenting God as a punishing God who will inflict punishment, as the lesson suggests, actually defending God's true character, or is that misrepresenting God and supporting, supporting Satan's charges against God? Are we advancing God's kingdom by presenting him as a punishing God, or are we advancing Satan's kingdom? It dawned on me this, really, this year, why there was so, uh, you know, the, the predictions about Moab, the predictions about Edom, and so on. And, I, and it, it had dawned on me that God had to teach his kids a lesson by sending, allowing Babylon to take them. That's the last, that's the final straw that got them to get away from idol worship and so on. But then he had to pay attention to his reputation around all the other countries thinking, well, they look at, you know, their God must not be very strong because they were taken away. So God had to deal with each of the countries around him. And when you look at what he says about each country, it's a prediction. They're predictions of what will happen to each country. Kind of like you can believe what's the future because you believe the prophecies. And he's prophesying about what will happen to each of these nations around, showing that I am still powerful. I know what your future is. You can trust that I'm telling you the right things because what I'm telling you now is going to come true and you can learn to trust me. So the question, do we present the truth about God's character by presenting God as a punishing God, as the lesson suggests? No, if, if God was a punishing God, he would have gotten rid of Satan immediately. Well said. So let's look at Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And that if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. So Satan's version of a God of truth and justice is a God who punishes sin. He's a punishing God. So when you present God as powerful punisher, you are actually misrepresenting the character of God. It's a lie. And this is exactly what happened since 1888 in our church because we rejected design law 
and we've doubled down on a Roman view of law. And instead of the church institution teaching the final message of mercy, we have advanced Romanism. Here's a couple of quotes from um, one of the founders of the church along these lines. Check these out about this question of God's character and punishment. This is a selected message, volume one, 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner, regard, uh, sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstance that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. What laws is this author advancing and advocating? What happens, what is the natural consequence of sin? We destroy our own selves. This is design law. And if we regard God as the punisher, then we're promoting Satan's kingdom of imposed law. We worship a creature, not the creator. Here's a quote out of Great Controversy, page 35. The Jews had forged their own fetters. They had filled for themselves the cup of vengeance in the utter destruction that befell them as a nation and in all the woes that followed them in their dispersion, they were but reaping the harvest which their own hands had sown. Says the prophet, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Their sufferings are often represented as punishment visited them upon them by the direct decree of God. It is thus that the great deceiver seeks to conceal his own work. By stubborn rejection of divine love and mercy, the Jews had caused the protection of God to be withdrawn from them, and Satan was permitted to rule them according to his will. The horrible cruelties enacted in the destruction of Jerusalem are a demonstration of Satan's vindictive power over those who yield to his control. What did the lesson just tell us? That God had to use power to punish. Whoa! This is Satan, this method. We can't defend God. And notice, it is thus that the great deceiver seeks to conceal his own work by teaching that it's just and right to inflict punishment upon the disobedient. And then Testimonies, Volume 5, 738. From the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that they might secure them to himself. Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil as arbitrary. That's someone who makes up rules like our laws, made up rules, severe and unforgiving. You have to punish. You cannot forgive. There must be somebody take the penalty. If we don't punish you, I got to punish Jesus. I can't forgive it. And this is exactly what the lesson is teaching. It's so sad. Tim, there, there's an interesting uh, corollary here in that um, if you really want a an early and an absolute uh, statement on the character of God, you have to look at the man that he called after his own heart, David. Because after David's victories, which were securing the, the role, essentially, that Israel had in history to bring forth the Messiah and so, so on, People were, were praising David, saying, Saul killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And when God came to the point where he was, he, he was ready for them to build a temple to himself, 
He said, this man cannot build the temple. He's a man of blood. So I don't understand how, how there's such confusion in the minds of those people who think that God has to, has to bring immediate blood, bloodthirsty judgment. Because they accept the lie that God's law functions like human law, if anyone believes that lie, it always results in teaching that God is required by law and justice to use his power to inflict punishment for sin. Because if he doesn't do it, there is no justice. That's the, they're trapped and there's no way out for them as long as they hold to God's law functions like human law. If you think about human law, it's unfair, it's not right to not enforce the law. And that's how they think. And that's why they always teach this. And then they'll then bring in all these layers of confused, contradictory stuff. But he loved us too much, so he sent Jesus to live sinlessly and then to inflict punishment upon an innocent person to make sure the punishment gets paid. But then he'll declare the guilty to be innocent if they claim a blood payment from the innocent and we'll call that justice. It's so convoluted and contradictory to reality. It's really, really, really sick. Yeah. Bottom paragraph, um, green section, it says, the honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. That's from Desire of Ages 671. How do you understand this important truth and what it should mean in your own Christian life? How do, and so the question, how does God get his character restored in his people? Can character be created by God, by, by using divine power to create it? No. No. no, it cannot. God can create sinless beings, angels, Adam and Eve and Eden. Character is developed by the choices of the individual sapient being. God can use power to force people into behavioral compliance if he wanted. But can God use power to force people to trust him? Can God use power to force heart loyalty? Can God use power to force love out of people? He cannot. And so what God wants cannot be achieved by power or infliction of punishment. This is why Satan has the church teaching that God uses power and punishment because it actually obstructs what God wants. And the Bible teaches that God's methods are not by might nor by power, but by the spirit, says the Lord. And the spirit of the Lord works by the truth and love. Truth presented in love, leaving people free, wins us to trust. Yes, Linda. And I'll, I just like this uh, version of what Jesus does do in Isaiah 1. It says, uh, starting at 24, Ah, I will get relief from my foes. I'll avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities and restore your judges in the days of old. And so on. This, and this is talking about uh, Jerusalem too. And the city of afterwards you'll be the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God does attack sin. He tries to. He puts us in the furnace. He refines us, and in those ways, he presents us the opportunity to let go of what's killing us and embrace what will save us. And that is the vengeance of design law, doing what's right and just, meaning healing the sick, sin sick person and removing the disease of sin sin fullness from the person, not punishing the person who's sick with it. That's the difference. 
Yeah, so well said, thank you. Monday's lesson, it asks us to read Psalms 41, one through three. And it says, blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in his times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. Huh. Do you read that and feel comfort or do you read that and feel concern? Is this a promise from God? Can we claim this promise? Many Jews went into the gas chamber in Nazi Germany claiming promises just like this one. And what happened? And in the aftermath of the Holocaust, many Jews stopped believing in God because of promises just like this one. What about the Christian? Does God protect all Christians who are faithful to him, loyal Christians to him? Does he protect them from their earthly enemies, from disease and from their, and from their sickbed? And, and heal them all. If you think about his disciples, John was the only one listed as being at the cross. John is the only disciple that was kept from being killed. Uh, the other one. So John, John was kept from 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 aging and being feeble and crippled and dying of old age. No, but he was he was kept from being boiled in oil so that he could be on Patmos and reveal more about the character of God and the upcoming things. Yeah, yeah, but that's not what the that's not what the promise is here. God did not intervene to stop the death of all the other disciples. Right. I'm I of course. So the question then is is this a promise you can rely on or is this just a wishful thinking? something God can do, but nothing we can actually have faith in. Well, there's a spirit. We all know God can do this, there's but we certainly shouldn't claim it because most Christians have, get sick and most Christians die in their sickbed. There's a spiritual dimension that is nevertheless a great part of reality, albeit that re reality being tomorrow, not today. So, so thank you, Ken, because this, this is my view, is actually talking about the central theme of Scripture. And what's the central theme of Scripture? Is the central theme of Scripture about earthly deliverance from earthly enemies, or is it about deliverance from sin? What's the central theme of Scripture? Deliverance. Temporal deliverance or eternal deliverance? Eternal. eternal. Then then could the psalm, inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually be about this larger deliverance, not from just temporal problems? So here's how I paraphrased it in the remedy. Happy and spiritually healthy are those who care for the helpless. In the time of trouble, the Lord will deliver them. The Lord will preserve their individuality and give them eternal life. They will live and be happy upon the earth. The Lord will not give them up to die from selfishness, their enemy. He will provide remedy to their sin sickness and restore them back to his perfect design. This is what I think the Psalm is truly, truly saying. It wasn't promising all that earthly deliverance at all. Let me give you an example. Let me, let's take the life of Stephen and let's apply the two interpretations. Did Stephen experience happiness and spiritual health? Did Stephen get delivered from his time of trouble? Before you answer, what law lends and what do you understand his true time of trouble to be? 
Was his time of trouble merely the physical persecution and the stoning, or was his real battle the temptation to hate his persecutors, the fear of death, and any temptation to retaliate with earthly means against his enemies, to call curses down on them, the desire for vengeance? Was this the real battle that, that he would have to face? And did he get victory from that? Yes. Yes, he did. And did Stephen, by being delivered from fear, selfishness, and evil retaliation with a heart of love that forgave those who stoned him, did he have his individuality preserved? And will he receive eternal life? Yes, he did. Will Stephen live happily upon the earth, the earth made new? Yes, he will. Will Stephen be given up to die of selfishness and decay in an eternal grave? No, he will not. Will Stephen benefit from the remedy Jesus procured and be restored to God's perfect design? Yes, he will. And so to me, this psalm was never about promise that if you are good to the poor and the needy, that God will deliver you from every earthly trouble. It's a promise that when you have God's law in your heart, you will be good to the good in the. Uh, well, you will be good to the needy because you're living out His law, and then all the other promises fall in their wake because you've been reborn and you live His His law. You will be delivered from all these consequences of sin. Questions about that? Well, it, it makes it really hard to understand if you just look at this life that we have, whatever how many years we have. You are so focused on this world, this life that we have, you have a hard time seeing into the future of what God has for us after this life is over. That's exactly right. And this is one of the devil's traps. The devil, and this is why the Bible says, we are to fix our eyes upon the problems of this world. No, we fix our eyes upon Christ. We are always to be looking, uh, you know, as, as you look in the hall of faith in, in, Hebrews, in Hebrews, as you look at those great men of faith, they had a longing for a better country, a different land. They were in this world, not of this world. And so the real challenge is for us to have that circumcision of the heart, that we can be in the world, be aware of the world, but our mind, our heart, our values, our perspectives are not from this world. And we're not actually um, primarily focused on the events of this world. Other than as they're working out the plan of salvation to reach and save souls. That's, that's, the, that's the goal, isn't it? And as we see where we are in this landscape of time, we see that there's a special message that is to be given to the world that are going to call people back to worship God as creator and reject this Babylonian infestation of imperialistic uh, punishing God concept. And we have been given a really message that is life changing. I can tell you when you understand this, it is not just theological. It is daily living that you understand all of God's laws are the laws upon which he built life to operate upon. That includes the physical laws as well. And as you understand and choose to live in harmony with them, you actually are healthier, you are happier, you thrive, you overcome, you retain your peace, and you have health in mind, body, soul, and spirit. And it, it restores people. And this is the principles we're bringing to bear here at Honey Lake, where I'm medical director. And you see lives completely transformed. We have this holistic a campus where we bring these things to bear in their lives. And it is it is quite a different thing than 
well, we've got a system of rules. And if you don't keep the rules, then you get in legal trouble. But you can get your payment made by having an intercessor plead to God in your behalf and, and all those sins be erased. And, and it really doesn't matter what sins you complete uh, now because all your sins, past, present, and future, have already been put on Christ and they've, they've been paid for in, 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 in Christ. And so, you know, you've been saved. So, you know, basically you will always continue to live a rebellious and sinful life. There'll be no perfection. You'll continue a wicked life. Uh, and this is what most Christians are taught, and they live these lives of absolute dejection and discouragement and guilt and fear because they don't have the true power of Christ restoring them into righteous living where they are trusted friends of God. And that's the true gospel message, that we become transformed. And while we have the difficulties that Stephen had or Paul had uh, of the real world assaulting us, we have within us a peace that passes understanding, a true joy, because we actually have the principles of God as the driving factor in our life. And uh, we're out of time, so there's a whole nother section, Psalm 77 in the notes, where I con contrast that from the NIV and the remedy and go through it um, pretty much verse by verse. I encourage you to get the notes and go through that this week. And any other questions for today? All right, so we'll close with prayer, and then we'll take a short break and, and come back for a Q&A. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much. You are such a good God. We thank you for the way you've created reality to operate and that your laws are constant and they never change. We thank you that when Adam sinned, that you didn't abandon us. You sent Jesus to fix the problem and restore us to health, happiness, and wholeness. And we open the spirit, our hearts to the Spirit and ask that the Holy Spirit will come and take the victory of Christ and give us new heart, right spirit, and write your living law into our inmost being, that this will be the, the motive that drives us to action, to love you with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as yourself. We pray in your holy name. Amen.